0: No, way. Our rule was every employee had to work at a restaurant, not in previous life. When you were hired week one, you're working in a restaurant. That was part of our onboarding, whether you were CEO or entry level answering the customer support phones, whatever it might be, you're working in a restaurant week one to make sure you get it.
1: This is the L3 Leadership Podcast, episode number 198. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast. My name is Doug Smith, and I am your host. I hope you're doing well. In today's episode, you'll hear our interview with Evan Adams. Evan was employee number two at a startup company called No Wait, which scaled and got sold to Yelp for $40 million. If you're unfamiliar with No Wait, they created an app that was a waitlisting system for restaurants and uh, allowed guests to add their name ahead of arrival in order to speed up the time that it takes to be sat. Through the app, guests can check their wait times, receive texts when their table is ready, and several other features. It's just incredible if you haven't used it. And uh, in the interview, you will hear Evan share the lessons that he learned from being a startup and literally the number two employee uh, to scaling the company to getting sold. And he gives a ton of practical advice that will help entrepreneurs scale their companies as well. And so you're going to love this episode. And as always, we also interviewed Evan for the lightning round. And if you want to listen to Evan's lightning round, you can listen to that in episode number number 199. As always, I want to thank you for being a listener to the podcast. Uh, We appreciate every single one of you. And it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. It does help us grow our audience. So thank you in advance for that. And just a few other announcements before we dive into the interview with Evan. I want to encourage each of you to become a member of L3 Leadership. If you've ever wanted to take your life and leadership to the next level, if you've ever desired to be surrounded by a community of leaders that will encourage you, challenge you, hold you accountable to your goals, and help you reach your potential, then you need to become a part of L3 Leadership. When you become a member, you'll have the ability to join our private Facebook group, Join or launch one of our mastermind groups. You'll have access to our community of over 135 leaders, and you'll have access to the tools and resources you need to take your life and leadership to the next level. So stop doing life alone as a leader and join our community of leaders and start thriving. To learn more about membership, you can go to l3leadership.org forward slash membership. I want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. They are a jeweler owned by my friend and mentor, John Henny. And my wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings through Henny Jewelers, and we just think they're an incredible uh, company. Not only do they have great jewelry, but they also invest in people. In fact, they give every engaged couple a book to help them prepare for their marriage, and we just love that. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. With that being said, let's dive right into the interview, and I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. (coughs) So Evan, thank you so much for being willing to do this interview, and why don't we just start off with you just giving us a brief overview of who you are and what you do.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to do this. I've, you and I have been emailing about this for a little while to get together, and, and you continue to have people do your podcast that have done incredibly better things than me, and so as you've got great leaders, I'm like, oh, I better get on this podcast fast before he gets the president or something on there. And uh, no, I, I I got to I got to be a part of the no wait team. Uh, we'll talk about that, I suppose. And uh, that was all the way back in 2011. I, I joined them, and from Pittsburgh, grew up here. Went to Grove City College, just north of town, and uh, did the typical Grove City thing, where I met my wife up there, and uh, she's also from Pittsburgh. So uh, Pittsburgh family through and through. And we've been blessed to spend the last roughly seven years total at, uh, at No Wait. We were acquired by Yelp on March 1st of 2017. And uh, I got to be a part of, of uh, a, a team that went through that acquisition and, and led portions of that. So uh, here I am today. I officially wrapped up at Yelp January of, of this year. So I'm, I'm living the semi-retired life for the moment until we find the right thing to jump into, but uh, yeah, that's been the last uh, seven and a half years for me.
1: Yeah, so, so I found out today that you were officially employee number two.
0: Yes, at employee no number two. Uh,
1: and so uh, the company, and as you mentioned, they got acquired, I think, for around $40 million. Mm-hmm. Sure. Not, not a bad day, and so I'm just curious, you were employee number two. What do you wish people knew about the journey it took from the startup stage to you guys getting acquired that people may not know?
0: Yeah, I think one one of the one of the most interesting and kind of fun things about the no wait story is that uh, in the synopsis of of what we did is we would send a text message to guests when their table's ready at a restaurant. So uh, two pieces: if you go into a restaurant that uses our service, you would instead of receiving a little buzzer or pager you know, in the old days, that would be what Olive Garden used. Instead, you would get a text message on your phone. But the bigger portion of what we did is allowed you to check the wait times of the restaurants around you and through an app on your phone called the no wait app you're able to actually put your name in line uh, the reason i i explained what we did is that i constantly hear that was such a oh, i had that idea <laughs> well, i knew i should have done that that was so easy and a lot of people in hindsight will we'll comment that, oh, right place, right time. And look, luck, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I, I call it just uh, some providence. It, yes, those things are a, a big portion of it. But I remember back in 2012, I had found an article written by what was a, a, a busted competitor. They had done the same thing as us. Mm. And it was just a blog post where someone said, don't try this idea. We try to do it and give it to restaurants for free. It's really hard to, to convince the restaurant industry to do anything. And I printed that out and had it on my desk for a while because these guys had a an idea before we did. And it was, it was a lot of hard work, a fantastic team, a team of people that were willing to put the project and the goal ahead of themselves that allowed us to, to be successful. And I think... You know, just on the, that overall journey question, it's, uh, I, I hope people understand that it, it's not just about being at the right place in the right time. Those, that is a factor, yes, um, but there is a lot of hard work. There's no such thing as an overnight success, I think is the moral of, of that rant I just went on.
1: Yeah, over, over the course of those years, I'm just curious, what were some of the biggest challenges that you guys had to overcome from inception to getting acquired?
0: Yeah, it, there, there are definitely different phases we went through. And the first one, and I'll highlight each of them quickly. You know, the first is getting the right product market fit. The first is, okay, we've got, our, we've got a product that a couple restaurants decided to pay us for, but is this more than a friends and family thing? Are we able to get more than the five or six restaurants in Pittsburgh to use us? And, and, and so we had to find the right, what we call the right marketing approach, the right messaging. And when we did, we saw a big jump. We started to, I'll share a story. There's a, a restaurant in Pittsburgh that uh, we were trying to get them to buy into our service. And they said, well, we just bought all these new pagers. And I said, well, how much did they cost? He said, well, these were nice pagers are $70 a piece. And how many did you buy? Oh, we bought about 30 of them. I'm like, oh, man. All right, well, we'll come back to these guys in a couple of years. And we got a, a phone call Maybe even the next week. And it was late at night. I got a text message actually from the manager. And he said, I need to see you tomorrow. We're ready to sign up. I said, what happened? He said, I have a, a guest who got really upset with the wait time. And he gathered together a bunch of other people who were sick of waiting. And they had a pager skipping competition into the river. So they went down to the river, and about 12 pagers got chucked into the river, which was, wow. you know, add that up, 900-some dollars. <laughs> and, and so we realized this messaging of, okay, let's talk about replacing pagers. We can charge 100 bucks a month and be way cheaper than the pagers you lose. And I, I think one of the reasons I went so deep into that story is we had this hurdle of we, we were looking for the right messaging. We found it. We then grew to a couple hundred restaurants. And then the biggest hurdle we went over is, okay, now we're growing. We're able to get the top 25 restaurants in each city around the country. But how do we get even bigger and really get this to the place that uh, we ended up with 5 million people that had the app on their phones and uh, 5 or almost 10,000 restaurants, I think, by the time through the acquisition with Yelp. We, we got there from that question of scaling, uh, of how, how do we scale? We took a couple false steps. Uh, we tried to hire fast and we realized, okay, maybe we should back up a little bit. Uh, and then we brought in executive leadership over a couple of different departments, technology, sales, brought in a few people who've done this before. And uh, we made some missteps. We had some people come in, we had some people leave. But I think that scaling moment in a business is, is uh, probably the most important one outside of once you take your first step and you're truly off the ground, the next part is how do we really build this thing into a national presence?
1: That's interesting. I'm, I'm, well, two things. So I want to talk about scaling since you just hit on yeah. it. If you could go back now mm. you know, and label, lay out the steps where if someone's listening to this and they're starting to deal with it, hey, we're starting to go really
0: fast, but if we really want to take it to the next level, what would you tell them to do today? Well, I'll speak more of the individual basis. So if I could go back and talk to Evan seven years ago, it was, there was a, a, a lesson that uh, I understood in my head but didn't know how to truly walk it out. And and really it was that I didn't know how to ask for help. I was employee number two, as you said, and, and so I, I really was employee number one of the business, kind of the, uh, the client-facing side. So when we started, I was our sales lead, I was our account management lead, you know, the post-sales, billing, customer support. I did all of that and as we hired more people i was managing all of that and so we hired people and scaled a little bit but i i was the uh in my mind i was the rock or the you know the the, the what was holding everybody together but that's really close to and really became me as the bottleneck of mm. scaling wow. and I was necessary in that role for a while because I had been doing all those processes and I needed to scale myself first by hiring people who could do billing or logistics or sales or account management or customer success. But then I needed to get more out of the way. And as I learned to to do that better, and I, I was never perfect. But... Was
1: that hard? Or did you just out of curiosity from, an, oh, I not yeah. say an ego and pride standpoint, oh. but uh... Hey, I've always done this. These are my babies. I built this. And, yeah. and how did you start Oh
0: my goodness. I mean yes, you, you can like I'll over? say an ego and pride perspective. Yes, absolutely. That was difficult. And um and there's yeah, the, the, the healthier way to phrase it, which is I cared so much. And that's true, I did. And <laughs> but but really, I mean, yeah. it was it would it would be one thing if I, I think the hardest part was when my CEO came to me and said, hey, you can't do all this. And my first reaction was, yes, I can. I'll show you. And unfortunately, there were some things that had to be ripped out of my hands. My CEO would basically say, you'll thank me later and take a few projects out of my hands, sometimes forcefully. Sometimes, hey, we don't want you to run this team anymore. We want you to bring someone else in or we're going to hire someone else to run this team. And the psychology you go through as a, a, particularly at that point, a young leader is what did I do wrong? Am I not good enough to handle this? And I mean, technically the answer is yes, but, but the truth is it had nothing to do with my capabilities as a leader over that particular team or function. It was that I didn't have a full vision of what it took to run a scaled organization. I didn't understand that in an organization of 100 plus people that we were moving towards uh, that my roles, that I was one, I was one person doing maybe five or six different jobs and that's not sustainable. And I actually started to realize that once I was burning out Hmm. and when I was burning out, I started to be a little bit more sensitive and vulnerable to when my CEO would say, Hey, I think you're doing too much. And I stopped pushing back over time and started to trust him. And the more I did that, the more energetic I was. I was more focused on the things in front of me. And I've carried that lesson with me through the end of my no weight career and into uh, some of the recent things I've started to develop is this concept of uh, creating a margin around what I'm doing. uh, So that uh, there can be some flourishing outside of myself when I become less of a bottleneck.
1: So, in summary, whether you're the founder or employee number one or number two, right. if a company or a startup—sorry about that—if okay. a company or a startup is going to scale, mm-hmm. that individual is going to have to let go of a lot of things, a lot of pride, a lot of ego, in order to do that. Or they're going to get moved out. And yeah. I was going to ask this later. I'm just curious in your experience working in the startup world. Have you found that all founders could scale their companies or the ones that can versus the ones who can't? What what characteristics hold people back from scaling?
0: Yeah, I'm, I, you know, experience shows that not all founders can scale their companies. its um, I don't have a percent on it, but I, I know of experiences that, and uh, well, I'll use know it as an example. Uh, for us, our founders could scale, but we needed help. And so we didn't remove any of our founders, but we did bring in a CEO. Our CEO was not originally one of our founders. And so when he came in, what happened was our, our team, our founding team, they're the ones who actually, they hire the CEO. And so they made a wise decision, which was, okay, we've raised some money. We know where we want to go as an organization But amongst us as the founders and our leadership team, we're going to be humble, I think is the key word on that. Humble and and there's wisdom in that humility to say that we don't have the experience or the characteristics amongst us to get the no weight team to where it needs to go. So let's bring in the right additional leadership. And because of that, Um, I can't say it was all peachy keen, right? You're talking about bringing in other leaders and I think it was all positive tension and, and good things. Obviously we had a positive experience, but we had a successful founding team. And while I haven't experienced this, I do know people who have been a little bit uh, more rigid with their, their uh, control and, if they're not the right leader to scale an organization, if they haven't done that before, they're not willing to bring in the right type of oversight to help them. Unfortunately, I've seen those founders removed entirely from the organization. And it's no, not like there's a disrespect of what has happened, but it is it is common that uh, sometimes what gets you here isn't what is going to get you there.
1: Yeah. And when you guys hired a CEO, I'm just curious, what, what characteristics were uh, in that CEO role? Was it strategic? What did you need at that time to go to the next level?
0: Yeah. Now I, I did not get to be, it was strictly our founders and our, uh, and our board who brought in that CEO. So I didn't get to be a part of building the hiring spec for that. But I can say from my experience with, with our CEO who, who was hired, a, a big portion of that was a, a dual language of being able to think strategically on technology but also think strategically on the business side. While in the startup, a a CEO is also mostly tasked with uh, revenue and fund management. So he uh, he was very focused on continuing to fundraise for the business, continuing to uh, find the right investors. And that was really, in addition to our clients, we would not have got as far as we did without proper investment with the right investment partners. So it, it actually makes sense. Our founders were very talented at building no that, you know, what everybody thinks, no, it is the product, the app, the experience, the messaging. Our CEO was talented as, on that as well, but there's, it would make sense that, well, if you're really good at building a product and creating a great idea, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're great at going out and raising money or managing a hundred people. And so you look for some of those complementary things in a CEO. And that was the case with ours.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about your role specifically. So yeah. you did a little bit of everything, but yeah. it sounds like your primary focus was sales. Uh-huh, that's right. And just to piggyback on something you said earlier about we had to get our message right. I think that's so interesting. and So mm. important to talk about today. Mm. Um, how if, talk to organizations, really any organization out there, how can they get their messaging right? Is it just Constant trial and error—is it hiring an outside team to come in and tell you what your message is?
0: I wish there was a silver bullet on it. There are some great teams out there that have uh, great third-party organizations that can help you figure out your messaging. But my personal favorite is—I I can probably uh, make it sound a bit more glorious than constant trial and error. Uh, with the way I—but it, it generally is that I, I, the way I phrase it is the, the buzzword is, is empathy. And for us, the actually starting with our founding team, one of our founders started to spend a lot of time in our not even our our our, uh, clients yet in our prospects. So they would they would go to a restaurant and they would uh, this was in more of the research phase. They would spend hours at a restaurant just learning. And as the first salesperson, I did the same. I would go to a restaurant. I would sit. I'd have lunch. I'd go into the kitchen. I'd carry my, my dishes back with me. Uh, I'd sit there and I'd just learn about not, not just, Hey, why aren't, why can, or how can I sell you this iPad at your host stand? How can I replace your pagers? The conversation became, tell me about your business. Tell me about what's going on here. And the more we were able to be empathetic to what it is to be a restaurateur, empathetic to what it is to be a host at a host stand. Well, that was when our product really tightened up and we started to realize how much of a pain it was to manage sheets of paper at the host stand. We started to realize how much of a pain it was when guests would walk outside of the radius of your pager system or that the pager batteries die and you've got to buy new ones and those cost $50-some a piece. We started to learn these pain points Just by spending our time with our prospects, becoming friends with them, eating with them. And when we worked that back into our product and our sales pitch, we were effective. And that took months, really, to go from kind of that early stage idea to where we started to see some early product market fit traction.
1: Yeah. I'm just curious your best sales advice through your experience. If you could sit down with... Uh, sales teams that are just starting off, you know, what would you tell them about what it takes to be successful in sales? Where do you see people missing it? Mm. You know, what are the daily habits that you have to have to be successful?
0: Yeah, there's, uh, it, I, I think there's the, a difference between advice given to, say, a team of people and an individual. On an individual, I think there's a certain preparation you need to do as a salesman about the psychology of sales. Every salesperson says, oh, I can hear no. People tell me no all the time when I push through. But it's a different thing when you are backs against the wall. You're trying to hit your quota. You need to make your money for putting food on the table for your family. And things just aren't clicking. And you quickly then can associate. I've done this. You can associate your performance of that day to your, call it personal worth. And those things get confused. And so you fly high and think, I'm great when you're making a sale. But on those droughts, you really question who you are. And so being able to separate who you are from your daily performance. Now, it in the grand scheme, who you are should, or your daily performance should flow out of who you are. But not allowing yourself to be defined by whether or not that particular sale goes through is a, a key sales tactic that I've seen I've seen people quit, and they shouldn't. I've seen people get too high or too low. But when somebody really can understand, yes, making this sale is great, it affirms what I know about myself. Or I missed that sale, I'm going to learn about it, but it doesn't change who I know I am. That's when I see a successful salesperson. And I think just overall on the, the team front, I'd go back to that empathy. Uh, when I when I talk to a team about what to do, I say, look, you don't need to build the perfect product to sell it. I think you need to get in the field right now. I'm talking with students at colleges, you know, early-stage business plan type projects. And they try to build the perfect financial model, and those things are important. But when you can get into the field with your prospects, into the field with your target market, and just learn with them, your product will be better. And, and you're not even selling at that point, but you're simply, when you, your, your mentality will change from selling to fixing a problem, coming alongside an industry as an advocate. That's the kind of mental switch you want to try to establish early on in your on your sales team that I've seen. When that's done well, it is consistent. And to keep doing that. No way, our rule was every employee had to work at a restaurant. Not in previous life. When you were hired, week one, you're working in a restaurant. That was part of your onboarding. Whether you were CEO or entry level, answering the customer support phones, whatever it might be, you're working in a restaurant week one to make sure you get it. That's awesome. Yeah. What restaurant did you work at? Oh um, man, I was in Texas Roadhouse out in Beaver. Nice. And uh, technically Manaca, and met some great people out there. I also spent. I'm trying to think. I, I've, I spent so much time in restaurants. So I'm, i spent a lot of time at the Franklin Inn up in, up off the Wexford yeah. exit. And, um, those were my early days of indoctrination.
1: Do you have, uh, I guess we'll keep it local to Pittsburgh. Do you yeah. have a top three restaurants in Pittsburgh? I'm sure you visited them all and mm-hmm. ate at them all.
0: Yeah. I've got, I've got some favorites. You know, one of my favorites is one of Noid's first clients. I think they make great pizza and it's dinette over in East Liberty. They're located by where the Whole Foods is and right across from, from BRGR. Um, another one is Burgatory. They were another one of our early early restaurants, and that was when they had one location yeah, in Aspen right. And they've done really well. And I remember walk, it was one of, my first, uh, one of my first sales pitches. And I walked in, and the host said, Oh, thank the Lord, no weights here. <laughs> and he was so excited because he was losing his mind. They had hour waits for lunch on a Tuesday at a at a burger restaurant, and uh, so those are those are probably my two two top places. And then uh, I have to give a shout out to a place I've gone, and especially because it was next to our Oakland-based office. But uh, Pamela's, specifically in Oakland, that location, uh, I think I've personally funded their subscription <laughs> rate to no wait because I've been there t- two or three times a week for years. And it became a second office to me for a little while. When we were too full, we'd do interviews down there, and great people. So I would say those three are are some of my top top places. And you to just go, have great genetics.
1: Like you, you look like you've gained one pound.
0: I that we were we were talking earlier. i I had to pick up running nice. in order to support my habit. <laughs> Love it. Uh,
1: I want to talk a little bit about just entrepreneurship. Yeah, uh, I'll just leave it really open ended. But mm-hmm. lots of people want to start companies today. Entrepreneurship's really cool. Great. Um, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs or young, oh, young or old people? Anyone sure. who's out there listening, saying, "I have this idea,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I want to start a business."
0: There's a phrase <clears throat> that local Pittsburgh legend Sean Emirati uses, and he says, "Great entrepreneurs create the world how it ought to be." I love that, and because we think an entrepreneur is someone who starts a business. Can I be an entrepreneur and start uh, uh, hair cutting? It's really, are you seeing an opportunity in the world, or saying, "Hey, world, I've got an idea. I think we should change the way we do this a little bit because it's going to be better if we do." I, I love that, and so I think as an entrepreneur, you need to separate your desire to be your own boss from the phrase we just used because being your own boss is great and you certainly there are entrepreneurial things in that um but but you need to make for, make sure that your fire is more on that creating the world how it ought to be i think at a high level you know that is the advice that i try to give regardless of industry regardless of age i think that's the a checkpoint that that entrepreneurs need to hold themselves to
1: and though We were talking earlier. I think that's so important because if they don't have a great why, if their why is just mm. money, if it's just to stay at home, if it's just not to be in an office, yep. they're going to burn out, they're going to phase out and not get anything that they want. That's right. And so you were fortunate enough to work for a company that not only scaled, but did what every scaling company probably wants is to get acquired yeah. or get bought. Right. And so $40 million, not a bad sale. And so obviously you had to benefit somehow from that financially. Yeah. I'm just curious throughout this whole process, what have you learned about Money in and of itself.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and um, you know, it, it's it, while while you know, I'm I joked about being semi-retired. You know, the the, the luxury that uh, my family has received from this exit is really not so much the money side as much as we've now received the luxury of time in order to make sure we're we're focused on the right next project. Yeah, you know, whether it's No Weight or other major acquisitions, and there's been a couple around Pittsburgh. you'll see individuals go two different ways you'll see them retire on a beach somewhere and sort of check out or they finally answer that question which is if money doesn't matter what would you do with your time and you can really get back to that that why on um, why you do what you do and it's a scary thing sometimes actually it's a scary thing because you 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 can for a minute poke your head out of the weeds of you're not just working with your back against the wall, you have a little bit of luxury and then you really have to you really have to answer for yourself. What what do you what in in my background I get to say what has God put you on this earth to do? And uh, there's it's it's funny that money can do this but but there's a Almost, uh, if you're not careful when you're trying to answer some of those questions for yourself, it can get, I use the word scary, it can get dark at times too. Of wow, do, do I really care about this as much as I thought I did? Or am I a terrible person that I really just want to work over there to make more money? And, and I've seen, you know, while I've had aspects of, of sort of sorting that out in my life. I've had friends, whether they're from No Weight or from other companies that have been acquired that I've watched them and been a part of their walking through the psychology. And I think that overall this acquisition has served as a catalyst for what hopefully proves to be a successful calibration of psychology here for whatever whatever the next phase is. So yeah, I think the money simply just serves as the, a little bit of a key to to kind of start that up a bit.
1: Yeah, and so when this happened, yeah. did people start treating you differently, right? Were there people oh, waiting outside the front door when you it got was, home? Or? It was,
0: so the, the 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 funny story was, is this happened. I remember the days, so March 1st was the acquisition day. is actually my birthday. And uh, so Happy I remember birthday. the days. And, hey, it was a great day. And it was a Wednesday. So I had friends going down one of my best friends' bachelor party down in Florida to go to spring training for the Pirates. And... Everybody flew down on, I want to say Wednesday, on my birthday. But I, I knew, I couldn't tell them why. I couldn't go on Wednesday. But I knew what was happening. And so it happens Wednesday, hits, hits social media, good thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I have to be there on Thursday and part of Friday. And so I, I fly down on Friday afternoon. And I get, to, I get to the Avis rental car. They upgrade me to this... Uh, convertible mustang i'm like great so i drive up to this bachelor party and (laughs) these guys have read all the news that evan was late to the bachelor party because the company sold for 40 million guys i do not have 40 million dollars with me like stop it (laughs) but the best thing ever happened to me while we went out that night and everybody was excited about evan buying drinks or whatever it might be one of the other yinzers in our group weeks prior just, you know, very close to the trip had hit gold on fantasy daily football and made (laughs) hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it was this experience where like I could basically divert everybody towards him and he was happy to, to live like daddy Warbucks for, for the weekend. And, uh, but it was, it was a, it was a really good time and, you know, they teased me about it. Uh, one of the funny comments, right as we sat down, I got in. Uh, we went out Saturday morning, and one of my favorite dishes, one of my favorite restaurants is First Watch, and uh, they, have a, they have a seasonal dish called Millionaire's Bacon. Yes. And, and yes, I, yes, yes. And I sat down, and I said, guys, you've got to try the Millionaire's Bacon. And of course, they're like, oh, the Millionaire's <laughs> Bacon. And my, my friend says to the waitress, he says, do you have any paycheck-to-paycheck uh, paycheck pancakes? That's right. so you know you got to watch what you say, just because the perception is out there. Yeah. Uh, but it, it really, it, it you know, I think people quickly understood that you, you whether you're making, you know, it, this is real. This experience for us was really much more about the, uh, well, the experience, the wisdom gained. The psychology of how do I react to an acquisition? How do I react to something that I loved for seven years, a team, a company, kind of moving into its next phase, um, new bosses, you know, we went from 60 people to 5,000 people overnight. Wow. So I'm um, a lot less significant and, uh, learning how I react, how my teammates react, and hopefully in future acquisition like scenarios, I'll have a better game plan even of, of, of a solid mentality of how to, how to go into that. Yeah. So. so if you're listening to this, there's two
1: paths to wealth. One is jump on board of a startup to make it acquired one day. And the other is the, to keep playing fantasy football. <laughs> Apparently. Right? Apparently. That's, Apparently. that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, any other, any other advice for, I guess I'm curious on the, the entrepreneurship side. Yeah. Can you talk about feedback? So you talked about the importance of getting into the field and listening, which yeah. is really just getting feedback. Mm-hmm. But for those entrepreneurs who have an idea and they're putting their idea out there, sometimes feedback can be tough to hear. Can you talk about just that? Yeah. I'll just let you go
0: on that. Well, I, I remember constantly hearing, and this would have been circa 2004 or 5, this concept of stealth mode. I heard about that frequently, which is, you've got a great idea, don't tell anybody about it, or make sure you sign NDAs. And I, I, I was trying to reconcile with that. It, it didn't. I realized that the advice was coming from some folks who were very successful in the '90s, when it was a time of insane amounts of investment over a PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> and you know, money was quick and fast, and it's different now. And so, part of the advice I give to myself and to other people trying to you know, do a new project is. Talk about it everywhere. If you've got some trade secrets or a couple angles, I think you'll know what those are. And of course, you don't blast those out on, on social media. But conceptually, sharing your business idea is a brilliant thing to do. It will you, You'll realize your target market a bit. So you might have a conversation with somebody who's like you, maybe similar age, similar family, similar uh, socioeconomic geography, and they'll love your idea. And it feels great. You're the hero of, of drinks that night because you're the one who's thought of this brilliant thing. Go talk to your parents about it. And you don't even need to ask them for specific feedback. Just tell them about it. Go talk, to, uh, go talk to your friend's little sister about it. Go talk to some of your coworkers about it. Talk to your taxi driver about it, you know, whoever picks you up at the airport. It, you'll get a sense of different demographics and how they respond and when somebody responds and they're not excited it's not be, it's not because they're they're not smart enough to get your idea remember different personalities represent different huge chunks of people so if someone reacts negatively if you know your friend's little sister 16 17 year old says like well, that's stupid dive into that some more she might be onto something, right? You now, she's only 16, 17 right now, but give her 10 years and her generation's going to be running the world. So, you know, hopefully maybe 20 years from the, I know that a lot of 16-year-old sisters. So, but, you know, give them some more time. And, um, and you want to make sure that you're addressing the different things that, uh, that, that different generations are looking for. And, yes, you can have a target market. You, don't, you can't please everybody. But it's hard. I mean, it, it is it is an embarrassing thing. It's kind of like watching yourself perform on stage or whatever. No one likes to listen to them and on the old answering machines. No one wanted to hear their voice. Like, that's not what I sound like. <laughs> it, it, it's important to force yourself to do that, and um, I'm a big advocate for that. I know you've you've talked before about even just personal feedback sessions. I think, you know, as an entrepreneur – It's not just about product feedback, but you also need to grow as a leader. And so you want to ask questions about, well, how do you think I'm doing? Or am I thinking well about this? Or what are some things I can do to communicate more effectively? And the odds of you just being a home run straight from birth where you don't need to change anything about yourself at any point. Uh, I'm sure there are people out there who, who just happen to have the good genes for it. But I think the greatest of leaders are those who have constantly adapted
1: hey everyone thank you so much for listening to our interview with evan i hope that you enjoyed it you can find ways to connect with evan and links to everything that we discussed in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 198 As I mentioned earlier, you can also listen to our lightning round interview with Evan in episode 199, so I encourage you to go and check that out as well. And as always, I want to thank our sponsor, Alex Tulandon. Alex is a full-time realtor with Keller Williams Realty, and if you are looking to buy or sell a house in the Pittsburgh market, Alex is your guy. He's a member and a supporter of L3 Leadership, and he would love to have an opportunity to connect with you. You can find out more about Alex at PittsburghPropertyShowcase.com. As always, if you want to stay up to date with what we're doing here at L3 Leadership, you can simply go to our website and sign up for our email list at l3leadership.org. As always, I like to end with a quote, and Kevin Turner said this. He said, the only job security we have is our individual commitment to personal development. I love that. And I know that if you listen to this, you have a commitment to personal development. Thanks again for being a listener. Lauren, I appreciate you so much, and we will talk to you next episode.